Support for NPR and the following message come from Carvana, on a mission to make car buying more convenient and affordable than ever before. In minutes, you can browse thousands of options under $20,000. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today to get started. In 2015, NPR host Elise Yu moved to South Korea as an international correspondent. Almost immediately, I realized that by making the move, I had time-traveled forward and was face-to-face with the future of how we might live, look, and relate to one another. She writes about this future in her new book, which is out now. It's called Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. In the book, Elise takes a broader look at the Korean beauty industry. And she also writes about her own personal journey with beauty and identity. I asked her to read part of the introduction. South Korea's capital is an endless assault of images blasting in your direction on every street corner at every hour. Many of them are faces. They tower above you on digital signage glowing from the sides of skyscrapers, flash by in subway stations deep underground, or whip past on oversized screens attached to the tops of cars. What I found after I moved there with my journalist husband, toddler daughter, geriatric beagle, and two cats was a city that felt like a living monument to conspicuous consumption with upscale malls, blinding lights, and blinding wealth. Everything hitting you with its height and size and newness. I'm Mike and Scott, and this is a podcast extra from The Pulse at WHYY, a conversation with Elise Yu about her new book, Flawless. When you got to Seoul, did you have any sense of this just completely insane cosmetic empire that you were about to enter. Did you? What did you know about this beauty industry? I knew that it had become more and more of a curiosity and interest among my friends, my cooler friends, my hip friends. They were already starting to do Korean face masks, those sheet masks, which are now so ubiquitous that you can find them at Costco. Um, and this was 2015, so it was kind of on the ascent All of this hadn't quite peaked yet and become part of the zeitgeist. Um, but my, my sort of hipper friends all knew about it and were already practicing some skincare, Korean skincare techniques and buying the products. I knew that plastic surgery in South Korea had become popular. I had seen the stories about Korea ranking highest in the world for cosmetic surgery or cosmetic surgeons per capita. But what really surprised me was the preponderance of skincare and cosmetics products and shops available in front of me in every direction. You can stand on a street corner and see a place called The Face Shop, which is exactly what it is, across the street from a face shop, across the street from another face shop. The most expensive real estate in all of Seoul at the time was this corner of Myeongdong, which is long known for being a cosmetics district, where a store called Nature Republic occupied the space. And Nature Pu Republic is known for its peels and its serums and its various masks as well. And so I just didn't know about the abundance, the density of these stores, the preponderance of it, and kind of how much it was expected that you do the work of appearance. Where did this industry get started? How did it get started in South Korea? Like, what was the impetus? 
It came up alongside the Hallyu wave or what is the Korean cultural wave around the globe. K-pop, K-drama, Korean films, Minari, Parasite are now Oscar winners. As this, these cultural exports are the soft power of Korea, which is actually a pretty small country. It's about 55 million people. Geographically, it can fit in the space between Los Angeles and San Francisco. But it's outsized when it comes to its cultural exports. Squid Game is the most watched program on Netflix, I think, ever. Or it was until it was bested by another Korean television show. So it has outsized cultural exports and outsized cultural importance. And what followed was that a lot of these K-pop artists and filmmakers and actors, these people who were on screen and seen on screen were acting as giant billboards for the Korean look, Korean fashion, Korean standards, Korean beauty. And so I have an interview with one researcher who says, you know, Korean beauty would not have happened without the Korean wave. These things kind of went hand in hand. Were you familiar with these types of products? You know, I'm thinking like my knowledge is about limited to cleanser and a scrub and a night cream and a day cream and maybe an eye cream, maybe some lip balm. But it sounds like there are just so many more options. So many more options. It's the mustard problem at the grocery store, only it's skin serums. Uh, It was around this time that the Korean-American Charlotte Cho, who I do write about, coined this idea of the Korea, the K-beauty 10-step routine. And that consists of 10 steps that you can practice as part of your skincare routine each morning or each night. What are the 10 steps? I can't even possibly think what 10 steps one could take. And and Charlotte herself will will say that you don't actually have to do all these 10 steps. And this has kind of become something that's gotten out of hand, (laughs) even from when she first coined it. But it includes lots of moisturizing. It starts with two kinds of cleansing, double cleansing, which is something popularized by K-Beauty. So an oil cleanser, which helps remove the makeup or dirt or residue that's on your face from the day. And then the gel cleanser or the uh, traditional foam cleanser that's more soapy. And then you exfoliate, then toner, then some sort of essence, which is moisturizing. Eye cream, also moisturizing. Sheet mask, also moisturizes. Serum, moisturizer. So this is moisturizer in the form of lotion. And then sunscreen. And what are we talking about in terms of cost for for these products? Like if you go shopping at the face shop, how much are you going to drop? The thing is that it's quite affordable, which makes it really attractive. Korea's skincare and cosmetics industry is so well-developed and so competitive that prices are really reasonable. So when a lot of these road shops, as they're called, these storefronts where you can just go in and buy one brand's products, like Innisfree, like Face Shop, like Vanilla Company that we're talking about, um, when you go in, you can get products marked as low as, you know, $3. You know, you could get a compact for somewhere between 9 to $12. At a department store in the U.S., that could run you 40 to $65, and the quality is quite similar. So you can buy more, but you can also spend more, right, because the prices are lower. At what age do girls in Korea typically start with these complicated skincare routines? Oh, gosh, middle school. Who? <laughs> wow. 
And it's and it's, it's not necessarily ten steps, right? But it is very normalized to. Uh, well, everybody wears sunscreen. This The population is excellent at sunscreen and no dermatologist seems to dispute the importance of sunscreen. And we should all, we would all do better by, by wearing it more and more often. Um, so the Korean culture has really embedded sunscreen into as a norm and that's excellent. But in terms of lip balms and makeup and wearing a little bit of BB cream, which I write about, which is kind of a mix of foundation and sunscreen and moisturizer, that can start as young as middle school, and it's quite normalized. In school uniforms, there's little pockets for your lip balm that are made into the jacket of school uniforms. And this is, what, sixth grade, 11 or 12. And I guess there is an emphasis on, like, preservation right from the start. So you start thinking about preserving your skin at a really young age. Yeah, and that I actually... I really appreciate. So again, you know, this is a complex issue. I did not write a polemic at all because there's so much about K-beauty culture that I do celebrate and appreciate. And one of them is this idea that the same thing that we see in healthcare, which is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Like, let's prevent problems from coming up later. I just think and I worry about the industry problematizing a lot of things that don't need to be problematized, like creases in your forehead appearing in your 30s, which I think is completely normal. (laughs) And we should question why we need to have creaseless foreheads. How important is the packaging on these products? The way you describe it in the book, it sounds whimsical. It sounds really fun. It sounds like they are just visually super appealing. They are. They're so cute. It's hard not to buy some of these products because it's like, oh, that's so cute. That little panda on top of the ice cooling eye stick. Uh, <laughs> or or you have the lotions that are packaged in fruit, you know, so I have to buy them and then I have to buy them for my kids, which then introduces skincare products to my kids <laughs> at, a, at, at a rather young age. So I, I, even though I can see the programming and see kind of the insidiousness of it, it's irresistible sometimes. And I have to admit that. Um, and I don't necessarily think it's bad. Uh, Korean beauty, K-beauty is defined by some of the products that it's known for, right? Like BB cream, like sheet masks, like multiple steps of skincare, which involve essences. The packaging is really a K-beauty calling card in that there's a lot of thought into the bottles or the tubes and the ways that a certain moisturizing product is delivered. Charlotte Cho of SoCo Glam, who really brought a lot of K-Beauty to the United States, talks about how, yeah, you can take a foundation and it can exist in a tube, but then K-Beauty will make it into a stick or change the stick form into a compact. And then Add another product to that that pairs with it. And now you have kind of a moisturizing platform. And it's constantly changing and evolving. And the innovation there is fun and it's interesting. And it also does well for a company's bottom line. A lot of the ingredients for different skin lines are grown in Korea. And you you visited one of the places where many of these ingredients are grown. So I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Something like 75% of the green tea grown on Jeju Island. Jeju is Korea's southernmost island. It's tiny. It only takes a couple hours to drive the perimeter of it. 
And it's beautiful. They call it the Hawaii of Korea. And there are giant tea plantations in Jeju that kind of just spread and they're beautiful, lush. But 75% of the green tea grown there on the island is not for drinking tea. It's for skincare. It goes into the natural ingredients of various skincare products. I, in fact, still use one of the one of the products, a green tea sleeping mask from Innisfree that has green tea sourced from Jeju Island. So it feels good. I don't know if it does anything, but it feels great. We're talking with NPR host Elise Yu about her new book, Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott, and we'll be right back with more. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. When the economic news gets to be a bit much... Listen to The Indicator from Planet Money. We're here for you, like your friends, trying to figure out all the most confusing parts. One story, one idea, every day, all in 10 minutes or less. The Indicator from Planet Money, your friendly economic sidekick. From NPR. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. I'm Mike and Scott. This is a podcast extra from The Pulse, a conversation with NPR host Elise Yu about her new book, Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. Elise spent several years in South Korea as a correspondent for NPR. During that time, she became fascinated with the country's billion-dollar cosmetics industry. Elise describes the elaborate skincare routines many people follow, and I asked her, if the people she met seemed to enjoy these routines as part of taking care of themselves, or if it seemed more like an obligation. 
This is why beauty is such a fascinating topic for me, because there is both pleasure and there is labor involved. And there's a paradox, right? We do want to take care of ourselves. We do enjoy the kind of healing touch of a facial or a massage. But then if you have to spend a lot of time and energy researching and buying products and then getting these products right and then adhere to the maintenance of your skin and your nails or your hair, then at some point it gets really tiresome, right? It can feel like work. And so this made it a really fun and fascinating exploration for me. I would say that everybody's sweet spot differs. There were plenty of Korean women who felt like They didn't have a choice but to maintain their appearance because having a good appearance was not only important because, you know, of the traditional way we look at it, which is we make snap judgments based on people's beauty, but also... In Korean culture, it has come to be understood as a kind of work that you should do on yourself, right? So if you don't maintain your outer appearance, then you are seen as lazy or incapable, And I guess appearance plays a much bigger role in all kinds of settings. You describe that people have to include pictures in job applications of any kind. Like, it just seems like there's so much more emphasis on appearance. Yes. In Korea, they use this term called specs, which, you know, Mike and we use specs to talk about what our latest computer specs are, right? Like, how's your processor, your RAM, those kinds of things. We apply the specs to gadgets. But Koreans use specs as a term to compare people. Um, The usage is believed to have originated from Korean matchmaking agencies, which apply a formula for their clients that are looking for Um, a match. So for a woman, specs that would earn you a higher rating would include weighing a certain weight. Um, Often it's quite low, something like 110 pounds. Wearing at least a C-cup bra, exhibiting a small, fair-skinned face, always wearing makeup, being hairless, and then there's a quotient for cuteness as well. So these are all described as specs. They're specs for men as well. And so you, if your body isn't up to spec, then it seems natural to pay for upgrades. How did you feel about your own skin in this setting? I mean, it seems like sometimes we start paying more attention to something when we're in a situation where everybody is paying attention to, to that one thing. That's absolutely right. I was made aware of it. I was more self-conscious. And still, when I've gone back to Seoul for reporting, just within a few days, I can start feeling that self-consciousness creep in when I'm looking at the mirror. And I feel kind of like a teenager again, where I'm just uncomfortable in my body. And gosh, my skin just doesn't measure up. It doesn't compare to everyone else's, which seems glowier and dewier. Um, My size, I've always been larger than the average Asian American woman. And so I feel huge. I should note also that I was even larger (laughs) when I was in Korea because I was pregnant or nursing for the entire duration of my time as a foreign correspondent um, in Seoul. So so that really just added to my internalized sense of shame about my appearance, which ended up informing a lot of this journalism. Is there any backlash? Are there people who are not doing this or who are saying, I don't feel like participating? 
Yes, there was essentially a general strike against aesthetic or display labor, as these Korean feminists called it, in 2018. So my very last year in Seoul, while I was very busy and occupied covering Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump and their upcoming summit in then upcoming summit in Singapore and numerous missile tests, there was a growing feminist movement in South Korea that I really wasn't able to report on as closely as I would have liked called Escape the Corset. There's no official count, but hundreds of thousands of women who went online and also took to the streets to protest the amount of work that and the expectations for how women in Korea were to look, but also to behave. Um, Korea is a very modern society, but really patriarchal on so many fronts and ranks near the last when it comes to every gender equality index you can think of. Very few Korean women are at the heads of companies. The representation of women in its legislature, the numbers of women uh, lawmakers in the legislature are near the numbers of North Korean women in North Korea's similar body. And there's just a pervasive attitude of sexism towards women, and, and which I felt quite acutely as um, an Asian woman myself living in Seoul for so many years. And so that the tensions there really bubbled up to the surface in 2018, and it resulted in protests and demonstrations in the streets, but also an online protest called Escape the Corset, where women would crush their compacts and throw them in the trash or make videos of themselves cutting their hair, make videos of themselves wiping all the existing makeup off their faces, showing the evidence of what they call discarding the corset. Um, and makeup, skin care, long hair, fashionable clothes, appearing feminine, they were all... Um, examples of the so-called corset that women were forced to live under. And to this day, there are still many women who are participating in this strike. And you see them in Seoul. They stand out because comparatively, their numbers are small, right, compared to the larger population. But you still do see women who are makeup-free, who roam the streets with really short, boyish haircuts, who wear really baggy clothes instead of kind of the sole woman's uniform of fitted skirts, fitted pencil skirts, and covering up your arms. So there still is resistance to it. There was kind of a very notable action against appearance labor several times in 2018. And it was really inspiring to see, I thought, um, that people had had it. And I question like, the, la the lasting impact of that because while there were sort of short-term effects where there was a dip in consumption of skincare and cosmetics, according to some government numbers, I don't know what the long-tail effect of that action was, except it does present a different model of what women can be and what, what women can look like. We're talking with NPR host Elise Yu. Her new book on the K-beauty skincare industry and its impact is called Flawless. We'll be right back. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. 
Stories that change the way you think about your life. How how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Climate change fuels hurricanes. China promises to stop. The big lie persists. Butterflies have hearts. Singers die. Plumbers win. Nurses persevere. Your world speaks. We listen. NPR podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. The economy right now is bewildering, impenetrable, inconceivable. Not when you have the indicator of podcast in your ears. In under 10 minutes every day, we simplify the complicated news like... How does inflation drop? What the heck is a SPAC? Why are trendy little high-fiber sodas suddenly dominating store shelves? And more. Listen to the indicator from Planet Money and NPR. This is a podcast extra from The Pulse at WHYY, a conversation with NPR host Elise Yu about her new book, Flawless. It's about her time in South Korea and the K-beauty skincare industry. So what do you do when you get older? I mean, how do people keep up with this as they get older? That's the same question that I wonder myself. Um, at some point... We are released of these burdens. I spent some time with Ajumas, so older, authoritative Korean aunties that are called Ajumas. And I spent some time with some Korean-American ones after I returned because I wanted, I was puzzling around this question, which is, at what point can we stop trying to keep up with the Joneses? At what, at what point can we kind of let our bodies be how they're going to be, which are dynamic and always in a state of decay after we're done growing, right? I mean, that's kind of just biology. And they were already in their 70s. And one of them actually quipped. She said, not yet. Maybe when I'm 80. So, so, so there is this sense of just escalation. But what I found really comforting and rather beautiful when I spoke with the Ajumas is they have come to the point where they are beyond the target of traditional beauty marketing, right? And beauty industry sales. And I guess that's postmenopausal. And now that they are in this place in their lives, the reason why they maintain their bodies and care for their skin is truly as a matter of wellness and health. And there's a reciprocity about it. Um, one of the women that I interviewed 
she talked about how, hey, you know, I show up for my friends and I don't want to have an unkempt appearance when I show up and take this line dancing class with my friends because this is just about, you know, maintaining a kindness and an etiquette towards others. And I thought that was really beautiful. These women, I really, I really loved and appreciated what they had to say about community and about being satisfied in their bodies and wanting to extend their health for as long as possible so they could live full lives and not be a burden on their children, for example, um, or each other. What are your thoughts on beauty and this idea of being flawless now that you're a little bit further away from living in Seoul, but you've written the book? So how do you think all of, about all of this? Wow. <laughs> That's a big question, Mike. And, um, I wrote a whole book about this. I know. This. I, know. Uh, <laughs> I will say, I've, yeah, I've gone on a journey myself. So the book is bookended by my time in Korea, my arrival, and then my departure from Korea, and then the four years in between. And in those four years, I experienced a lot of the pressures of appearance standards. And then I went from thinking or sort of turning my nose up in an American sense at all the evidence that people were getting work done on their faces to completely understanding and un and having empathy for why people would get so much work done on themselves because it there's so much societal pressure it matters you know it matters to it it's a factor in getting a job it's a factor in when you're in a hyper competitive economy and having to compete against one another so it makes total sense to me now and that's a way that i grew but i also inspired a lot by the ajumas and inspired also by the escape the corset women i have come to appreciate my body for what it does and what it feels in a lot more visceral ways and i've come to let myself off the hook in a way that i don't think that i did or could really internalize before i thought this much about it so previously i think that I would have judged myself harshly if my weight went up or my weight kind of fluctuated. And that would actually be tied to whether I had a good day. You know, if I had a good hair day, I would feel better. And if I had a bad hair day, I would feel worse. And I think that I was able to finally sort of break that linkage between my appearance and my worth. And a lot of it is because I really drilled down and thought about this, right? And was intentional about this understanding that actually, you know, we are mere mortals, our bodies our bodies are constantly changing. They are dynamic. I keep that in mind and I sort of celebrate my body. I've let myself off the hook in that I don't place so much value or my self-worth on how I look, but rather have focused more on what ideas I can put out there, my body's capacity to feel, and the diversity inherent in all of us. I think my problem isn't a specific Korean beauty standard or a specific American or Eurocentric beauty standard, my, my issue and something I really wanted to question is standardization itself. Why we drive towards trying to look like one another and our ideas for what an ideal gets standardized in a way that leaves a lot of us on the margins. And so I have a far deeper appreciation for the diversity in the way all of us look and the magic kind of that we can all bring that's totally irrespective of what we look like. 
Elise Yu is a host at NPR and the author of a new book called Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. Be sure to follow our podcast to catch our weekly episodes and podcast extras. This conversation was edited by Alan Yu and Lindsay Lizarski. Our engineer is Charlie Kyer, and we had additional engineering from Adam Staniszewski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. WHYY's health and science reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. Uh, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR.